Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. This week, as you've probably gathered from the title, is a continuation of our little Brahms bend. We're once again going to be zooming in on just a small aspect of Brahms' work, so if you still want all that good, good biographical info, do be sure to go back two episodes to listen to the first of our series on Brahms. So let's get started. we all know Brahms as a high romantic composer, and as such, we would expect all of his works to include the clarinet. Now recall the clarinet really wasn't used as a commonplace instrument until the late classical era, but once we're in this romantic territory, it has become a standard of the orchestra. So though Brahms of course knew about the clarinet for his entire career, he didn't really take a special interest in it until later in life. In 1890, when Brahms was 57, he had made an unusual announcement of his retirement from composing. And although, of course, retirement is allowed, it does seem rare that a composer would choose such a path. Most composers we profile here on the coffee house write music right up until they die. Brahms, however, was very in tune with changing music trends, and he knew his own style very well. He could see the new musical horizons looming, and they weren't exactly the style he cultivated so well in the late Romantic. So he quit while he was ahead, so as to be remembered as a great composer. However, that doesn't mean he was done being involved in music at all. He was still very much interested in performing and listening to performances. One day, he found himself at a concert put on by one of the finest core orchestras in Germany, the Meiningen Court Orchestra. On this fateful day, Brahms was treated to performances of Weber's Clarinet Concerto No. 1 and Mozart's Clarinet Quintet, and these performances brought him out of retirement. Was it because he was so inspired by the compositional genius of his fellow composers? No, it was because of the clarinetist who was performing, Richard Mulfeld. Mulfeld was born in 1856. His father was also a musician, thus explaining how Mulfeld got into the business. He joined the Meiningen Court Orchestra in 1873, but as a violinist. For some reason, the violin section just wasn't his scene, so he decided to play clarinet instead. And after three years of self-teaching, he had made his way up to principal clarinetist, so he really was something. And upon hearing this performance, Brahms' compositional juices were once again flowing. He just had to write something, and Mulfeld had to be the one to play it. As we first mentioned, Brahms was familiar with the clarinet. It's not like this is his first time hearing the instrument. However, it may have been his first time hearing the instrument like this. Mufeld didn't play on any old regular clarinet. No, he had a special, newly designed clarinet that utilized the Behrman system. 
Now what does that mean? Well, you might be surprised to learn that not all clarinets are made and played the same. There are different systems of key placement, different shapes of all the different joints and pieces of the clarinet, as well as countless different materials the clarinet can be made of. A typical modern clarinet will likely utilize the Boehm system. The Behrmann system is a bit more closely related to the modern German system, and Mufeld's clarinet was also made of German boxwood as opposed to the tropical hardwood. He also apparently used a string to affix his reed to the mouthpiece rather than a metal ligature, so really everything was different than what a quote standard clarinet setup is today, though of course many people do modify their systems to more closely reflect this older sound. Now as such, with this different setup, the tone was warm and the ease of playing that Mufeld displayed that day was enough to bring Brahms out of his retirement. So inspired was Brahms by Mulfeld's excellence that he quickly wrote and published both the trio for clarinet, cello, and piano, as well as his clarinet quintet in 1891. And of course, Mulfeld was the honored performer. He apparently also helped a bit with the composition process by advising on little things to make it easier to play. And at the premiere of both works, Brahms' violinist friend Joseph Joachim was also present, he really did have a close circle of longtime friends. In 1894, Brahms then presented Mulfeld with the clarinet Sonatas 1 and 2. Rather than a dedication of For Mulfeld, Brahms wrote the Sonata's instrumentation as, quote, For Piano and Mulfeld. Such a sweet dedication for Brahms' nightingale of the orchestra, the Fraulein Clarinette, the Prima Donna. To celebrate the new sonatas, Brahms and Mufeld set off on a little German tour to promote the works. However, it was nearing the end of Brahms' life. The last time he got together with Mufeld for dinner was just nine days before he passed away from liver cancer. Mufeld, of course, kept playing and promoting Brahms' solo works, and it is thanks to these pieces that he became one of the most renowned clarinetists of his time. He passed away in 1907 at the age of 51. So now let's discuss the trio for clarinet, cello, and piano. Of course, this piece was intended to highlight the wonderful clarinet, and as such, Brahms was very careful about his choice of other instrumentation. For this style, it was almost a given that piano would be another key figure, which works well, as the piano tones and range can either match the clarinet or strike a dramatic difference. And for the third voice, Brahms was very smart with the cello, there is adequate range on the instrument to either mimic that of the clarinet or highlight the difference. This would be in contrast to, say, a violin, which often plays in a much higher register, perhaps overshadowing the key instrument. Or even if Brahms had picked another woodwind instrument, say, the flute, again, the clarinet could have been easily overshadowed. All in all, the cello seems like the wisest pick for the third voice in this trio. But that's not to say the clarinet is the star of the show 100% of the time. Far from it. In fact, all voices seem to play a fairly equal role in the execution of the music. One technique Brahms uses to make sure each voice is brought to the fore is using a little snippet of melody and passing it around so each voice gets its chance to say it. We hear this clearly near the beginning of the first movement. We hear the piano first, followed by the clarinet, and rounded out with the cello. Brahms also uses this technique in the third movement here. 
again moving from piano to clarinet to cello carrying the melody. And there are, of course, countless instances of this sort of melody passing throughout the entire work. But conversely, if one instrument is playing the melody, the others must be either resting or playing accompaniment. Of course, it seems easy for the piano to play the accompaniment, and here's just one instance. What does it sound like for the clarinet to play accompaniment? Here's an example from Movement 2. First, the piano has the melody, and then the cello takes over. And listen closely for the low clarinet notes in the background. of cello accompaniment to the piano line for movement one. Again, there are countless other examples, but if we demonstrated them all, we'd just be having you listen to the whole piece. But frankly, you should do that anyways, because it's fantastic. Listen to the end and Allison will tell you where we found our recording and you can go ahead and listen to that on YouTube or your listening app of choice. As you'll recall from last episode, we discussed that Brahms had an almost lifelong passion for Hungarian music. With that in mind, it's quite easy to hear this inspiration here in the clarinet trio as well. In movement one, for example, we hear the clarinet play a little alternating note line. It comes a bit out of nowhere as we've been pedaling along nicely in the key of C minor and suddenly Brahms throws in a C-sharp. It's an unexpected tone, but gives it that Hungarian vibe. In the fourth movement, Brahms gives us a familiar Hungarian motif. In the last episode, we talked about obscuring the downbeat by having a grouping of four sixteenth notes, quote, turn around on the third division rather than on the downbeat. And we hear that also in this work. Here in the cello, and a little later in the piano, and finally passed to the clarinet. Brahms takes the obscuration of the rhythm to an extreme in this final movement, by actually mixing 2-4 and 6-8 time. Both have two strong downbeats in the measure, so timing-wise it works, but the difference is if they are divided in groups of 2 or 3. The cello and piano begin the movement in 6-8, but here you can hear the beat getting more straight as it switches to 2-4. Listen closely once again as the clarinet plays the same riff. Let's talk about chords, specifically the ending chords of each movement. 
The piano, of course, is in charge of laying our entire chord out for us, meaning that we hear the root of tonic, the third, and the fifth. These notes are then replicated across many octaves, giving us a nice, lush, cohesive sound. However, the cello and clarinet have to get involved as well. There are certain rules to voicing. The highest voice often gets to play the tonic to help reinforce the harmony, particularly since it usually sticks out the most. In our instrumentation here, the highest voice is, generally, the clarinet. And Brahms follows this rule in the first and fourth movements. For both of these chords, we are in the key of A, major in the first movement, minor in the fourth, and the clarinet gets to play this tonic A loud and clear. However, for the inner two movements, the clarinet is relegated to the third of the chord. In movement two, we are in the key of D major and the clarinet is stuck on F sharp. However, since that is the prominent voice, we do hear this inner chord note emphasized more than we normally would. And the same goes for movement three. This time we're in A major, but the clarinet is playing the third yet again, this time C sharp. It's an interesting yet creative choice on the part of Brahms. So though he did voice a really nice strong tonic chord, he still gives the listener a slight feeling of it being a bit unresolved due to the emphasis on the more understated note of the chord. And with that thus concludes our little mini Brahms series for now, because obviously we can't abandon Brahms, isn't that right? That is definitely correct. As people have been doing for centuries, we will stick with this composer. But we'll be back next week with something a little different to give us all a little Brahms break for now. And if you have enjoyed this Brahms miniseries or anything else that you've heard on the Coffee House thus far, do consider dropping us a review on your podcast platform of choice, leaving us a follow on Spotify, and of course, recommending us to your classically minded friends and family. For the Coffee House Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. Brahms Clarinet Trio was performed by Paul Pittman, Bang Un Lee, and Michael Arnold. You can find The Coffee House on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Find us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. <laughs>